Well, welcome back to the 14th installment of our series on the spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception. And today we're going to move into the fourth of seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, The last session we dealt with the spirit of pride. And although we could have spent several sessions on that, I decided to limit it to one uh, just because, among other things, I was pretty eager to get to this next section, uh, which is the spirit of power. And uh, we're going to spend at least two weeks, uh, two sessions, if you will, on this. And today I want to start out by taking a look at subjects like the CFR, uh, the Bilderberg Group, uh, Bohemian Club from Bohemian Grove, and fake elections. And so we're talking about the spirit of power, and I'll explain what we mean by that here in a little bit more detail in just a moment. Uh, But let me begin, as I do every one of these sessions, by establishing the biblical basis for this study. Uh, Spirit of the Antichrist is not just some marketing name or tool or ploy to get people to watch a video. This is a biblical phrase, the spirit of the Antichrist. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, that the spirit of the Antichrist, which we have heard is coming, is now already in the world. So I know I talk about this each week, and some of you that are watching each of the episodes in this uh, series uh, may uh, be in the habit of skipping forward the first two or three minutes as I review, but just in case uh, some people are watching this video as the first one in the series, I always like to start out in the text as it relates to the spirit of the Antichrist. So basically what the Bible tells us is that there is an Antichrist coming. He's going to rule the world in utter wickedness and power and terror and tyranny. And he's going to be indwelt by Satan himself. And he's going to take over the world. And this is going to occur for a seven-year period just prior to the return of Christ to establish his long-awaited earthly kingdom. Now, in earlier messages in this series, we've kind of laid out a biblical uh, overview of of biblical eschatology and sort of end times events and so forth, so I won't take the time uh, to do that now. But this is the basis for this study, is there is an Antichrist coming, and yet the Bible tells us to watch out because that spirit of this future world leader is already at work in the world. In fact, he goes on to tell us that uh, even now many Antichrists have come, even though one, capital A, Antichrist is coming. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And this passage here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about the future Antichrist, whom Paul calls the man of sin, the son of perdition. And uh, the one who's going to be ruling the world during that future time, that mystery of lawlessness associated with him is already uh, at work in the world. And then again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Bible tells us through the Apostle Paul that some will depart from the faith in the latter times, and these will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And so this is all part of Satan's conspiracy to take over the world in which he is uh, conspiring with demons and human agents. And lastly, we always like to point out that this foundational a passage that in the last days perilous times will come. So putting all this together, and again we've done this in greater detail uh, in earlier, uh, at the beginning of this series, really in the first couple of uh, episodes, uh, but putting all this together, basically we're taking seriously what God's Word says. That if we're living in the last days, which we clearly are, the, the church age is the last days, and if perilous times are going to come, and if we're told to watch out for the spirit of Antichrist that's already at work, then we need to do that. And so we're watching now for seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. Nothing magical 
about this list of seven that I've come up with. But as I survey uh, the teaching in Scripture on the Antichrist, which I've written about extensively in my book, What Lies Ahead, and, and in several other eschatology texts that I've uh, written and taught uh, in uh, college and seminary for years about it, uh, I've sort of distilled down the characteristics of the Antichrist to seven primary characteristics. Uh, again, you could talk about many more. And if you made your list of some of the key characteristics of the future world leader called the Antichrist, you may come up with a different top seven. But these are the ones that I chose to focus on uh, in this series. And it's things like the spirit of pretense, uh, the spirit of phenomena, and the spirit of pride that we looked at last week. Uh, but today we're going to focus on number four on my list, and that is the spirit of power. The spirit of power. Do we see evidence that this supernatural quest and thirst and hunger for absolute power that Satan has always tried uh, to obtain and that he's going to uh, obtain a measure of for a period of time through his envoy on earth, the Antichrist. Do we see an uptick in that today? Do we see a manifestation of this thirst for power? Well, first, let's uh, make the case that this is, in fact, a key characteristic of the Antichrist by reviewing some of the passages of Scripture that deal with Satan's power. First of all, going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So we looked at lying wonders when we spent several weeks on the spirit of pretense, of deception. We looked at signs when we spent a couple of sessions on the spirit of phenomena. But there's another key word here, power. It's the Greek word dunamis. You know, the Antichrist is not omniscient, uh, and he's not uh, omnipotent, uh, nor is he omnipresent, because he's not God. He's a created being. He's an angel who fell, the archangel, one of the archangels who fell, a high uh, cherubim that fell from uh, heaven. And, uh, and so he does not have the kind of supernatural, ultimate, absolute power that God has. But he's been trying to take over this earth since he got kicked out of heaven and couldn't take over heaven. And so though he may not be omnipotent, all-powerful, he is powerful. He is very powerful. And we see throughout history, as recorded in Scripture, there are times when Satan is able to, in the supernatural realm, outside of time, space, and matter, manifest certain uh, paranormal, otherworldly types of um, activities. This is going to reach a pinnacle during the future tribulation period. So he is powerful. And we go to Revelation 13, which we've looked at a lot through this series, and we read that all authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, the word authority here is the word exousia, which is often translated power. Uh, you know, same, same kind of idea. So in order for someone to exercise power, they have to be in a position of authority. And as the one world leader in that future seven-year tribulation period, he's going to have that type of power. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And he goes on to say in chapter 6 of Ephesians that uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, something many believers have really overlooked as we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord, closer and closer to that moment in a twinkling of the eye where the Lord will catch up believers to meet Him in the air at His first coming uh, to, get to rescue the church from this present evil age. And then sometime after that, 
following the seven-year tribulation, to return with his saints, with you and I, believers of this present age, to establish his long-awaited kingdom on earth. As we wait for his return, we often forget that our struggle is not against the government. It's not against liberalism. It's not against Democrats. It's not against evil people. It's against powers in the heavenlies, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness. There is a certain power, again, the word here is exousia, that the Antichrist will exercise. Going back to Daniel's discussion in chapter 7 of the Antichrist, he says, Behold, I saw a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all beasts that were before it and had ten horns. I talked about recently in this series how the Antichrist has, or Satan rather, has Antichrist candidates available at any age because he doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. So he's got to have his man of the hour ready that he can kind of indwell and, and step into and put to the fore to sort of take over of the world once the restraining influence of the church is 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 taken out of this uh, world, and so we could look back through the annals of history and see many candidates who might have been his man of the hour should the rapture have happened in that day, such as Hitler or Stalin. But I mentioned previously that all of those wicked world leaders pale in comparison to the biblical description of the one who will rule uh, the earth during that seven-year period. Going back to Revelation. 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. This is the Antichrist, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. Ten crowns. Note the word crowns here is diadems that are placed on the horn, and and they're placed on the horn instead of his head because his power rests with his brute force and power. Uh, And on his head's blasphemous name. It goes on, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Just picture that description. Um, The dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. That's Satan. So the Antichrist is going to have unprecedented power, unlike any human being ever to walk on the face of the earth. We go to Revelation chapter 17, and we read that he will be given power and authority to the beast, these, this ten-nation confederacy uh, that will be a part of the new world order in the tribulation period someday uh, with the revived Roman Empire and the seat of power that will emanate from Rome and also from Babylon, rebuilt Babylon. I encourage you to uh, pick up my book, What Lies Ahead, if you want to study that in more uh, detail. But the, this governmental one-world system will give all of the power. It will cede it to the beast. So there is clearly a spirit of power associated with the Antichrist. And do we see that power at, that spirit of power at work today? Well, where do I begin? I mean, it's everywhere. In order for the Antichrist to exercise his power and control over the earth, he's going to need help. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent, like we said. And what we see happening all around us is setting the stage for the Antichrist's totalitarian, tyrannical regime. And it'll be worse than anything the earth has ever seen. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned previously the, the diagram of the Luciferian conspiracy. Clearly, Satan, according to Scripture, is trying to take over the world. 
And in his attempts to do this, he is conspiring with demons and also with human agents. A conspiracy uh, that we call the Luciferian conspiracy, that the Bible refers to it in this way. We talk about beginning with Lucifer, and it's self-evident from Scripture that he is using his demons, one-third of the angels that fell, and he is also using human beings, most notably the Antichrist. So this isn't just the stuff that people make up today to be sensational. This has a biblical basis for those who take the time to study it. Then with that biblical template, and I really kind of went down this rabbit hole many years ago, uh, and it became uh, one of my books called The Great Last Day's Deception, Exposing Satan's New World Order Agenda. That was the subtitle. And uh, so uh, I've done a lot of research into this, and though it's very difficult to pin down exactly who the human agents are that are part of this conspiracy. And remember, we did a lot of uh, work on defining conspiracy in one of the earlier messages in this uh, series, and we looked at the biblical term conspiracy that is used in the New and Old Testaments alike, as well as in many other extra-biblical uh, literature. Um, but this, this conspiracy is just a uh, two or more entities working together for nefarious means. In the legal system here in America, a conspiracy is defined as two or more people working together to commit a crime. That's a conspiracy. So again, conspiracies are as old as time itself. I won't go back and rehash that, but I did want to throw up on the screen uh, the diagram that I gave out in one of the previous uh, messages in this series, and it's labeled uh, Explaining and Defining the, the Luciferian Conspiracy, uh, Explaining and Diagramming, I think it's called. I don't remember exactly which one it was, about first, uh, session four, maybe three or four, along about there, but you can see it on our YouTube channel. But I, we don't have time in this particular session to go back through this point by point, but just to understand that at the tip of the spear, there are indeed human beings speaking and communicating with Satan, much like you and I might communicate with the Lord in prayer. There are those who believe Lucifer is the ultimate God, and they're doing his bidding. Now, as you go down the list, most people involved in this conspiracy are just pawns in the game. They have no idea that Satan is ultimately the one pulling the strings. And also, it's not monolithic. There are many competing agendas and conflicts and, um, you know, pride and all kinds of things that come into play, which is the reason that Satan has thus far failed to, you know, to implement his new world order. That and, of course, God's restraining influence and God's timetable. But from a human perspective, it's, it's not as easy for him to implement this. So you can go back and watch that video, but just know that uh, this conspiracy theory is very real. And I pointed out previously that, of course, I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. Anybody that doesn't believe in conspiracy theories is really being silly and naive because they're all around us. A theory is just speculation about who might be conspiring and about what. Once the evidence is overwhelming and proven, then it's no longer a conspiracy theory, but a conspiracy fact. So when it comes to the Luciferian conspiracy, I am a conspiracy factist. And we looked at several examples of quotes through the years. Some of these I've shown before. Some of them I'm just presenting for the first time in this series. But uh, for example, Prime Minister Winston Churchill talks about how the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must survive. He said that at the conclusion of World War II. You know, if we want to avoid future wars, we've got to create a one-world system, one-world government. We can't have national sovereignty. And Charles de Gaulle said the same thing uh, uh, after the war. Nations must unite in a world government or perish. Now, James Paul Warburg in the first half of the 20th century, 
he was a German-born American banker, well-known for being a financial advisor to FDR. And his father, of course, was one of the elite banksters, Paul Warburg, who helped to create what became the central banking system. And I'm going to talk more about the Federal Reserve in the next session, session 15. So I encourage you to come back and watch that once it's posted. Uh, but uh, James Paul Warburg uh, said, We shall have world government, whether you like it or not, by conquest or consent. <laughs> big new Brzezinski, a very well-known uh, world leader and advisor to multiple presidents like LBJ, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. He died in 2017, but he has been all over the place writing, promoting, and speaking about it, places like the CFR and other uh, institutions, the Trilateral Commission, for example, about this future one-world government. When he said, for example, this regionalization is in keeping with the Trilateral Plan, which calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of one-world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept, he said. He goes on uh, to say that... Uh, uh, this will involve a more controlled society, a society that is no longer uh, dominated by an elite uh, that, is un that is going to be dominated by an elite that is no longer, I should say, unrestrained by traditional values. And the traditional values that he's referring to there, by the way, he wrote this back in 1970, so this has been a plan that's long in the works and seems to be gaining traction as we see things like in our present day for the first time in 1,600 years in the history of the world, all Christian churches were shut down on Easter and many continue to be controlled and regulated and um, you know, uh, managed, if you will, by uh, government entities. So he's been, they've been saying this for a long time. But what, he's, what he means by traditional values are there is uh, those values of liberty. We can't have liberty getting in our way of controlling society. Another Brzezinski quote, he says, Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen uh, and maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. I'm going to get into this again in the next session when I begin to look in more detail and get down to the weeds a little bit and talk about how this spirit of power is, has tentacles everywhere and what that looks like in a, a technotronic age. Um, he goes on to say, shortly the public will be unable to reason or think for themselves. Um, they're just going to parrot what they uh, hear on the state-run media and that's happening today. And I like that this was quite interesting here because he talks about a persisting social crisis and uh, the emergence of a charismatic personality. Could that be a harbinger of the Antichrist? Uh, we see a dry run. Of, do we see a dry run of that today? As there are many people calling for a great reset and the ushering in of a one world system to combat this uh, control of virus scamdemic, I call it. It's really a control of virus. That's really. Uh, what it is. Um, you know, I was just reading, listening today about how uh, many uh, countries, the UK, Australia, uh, many other countries, uh, particularly in, in the other uh, half of the world that are experiencing their winter while we're experiencing our summer, have seen 90% drops in the number of reported cases of flu, unprecedented in history. Uh, for example, in Australia, it went from 7,000 during a normal period from April to I think it was July, I don't remember the exact times, but you can look it up, to seven. 
I mean, that, that's because th there is no flu anymore. Anything remotely related to a severe upper respiratory syndrome, SARS, is called COVID. And so, of course, COVID is going up because everything else is going down. It's just the flu. But something that 99.74% of people who are diagnosed with it survive, and 85% have such mild symptoms they don't even need any kind of treatment or hospitalization. And yet, they're using that as a pretext to shut down the world. So that's the persisting social crisis. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is going to lead right in to the end game for these Luciferians trying to usher in their world system, but it's certainly setting the stage. There's no doubt about that. But during the tribulation period, this charismatic personality and the controlling and exploitation of mass media and some type of crisis, maybe the crisis then will be the fact that millions of people have disappeared because they were born-again believers who were raptured to meet the Lord in the air. But all of that is going to lead to a highly controlled society, uh, he said. And then Arthur Schlesinger, uh, who said this in Foreign Affairs, which is the, uh, this was in 1995, the Foreign Affairs is the magazine, the official magazine of the Council on Foreign Relations that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Um, but he said, we are not going to achieve a new world order without paying for it in blood, as well as in words and money. In other words, the elite are prepared to exercise power even to the shedding of blood, if that's what it takes, to bring in the new world order. So the spirit of power, the spirit of power. Do we see this power at work in the world today? Absolutely. Let's talk uh, next about three primary avenues where the ones who really pull the strings, the top-tier Luciferians, actually exercise control over govern, uh, world affairs and government affairs. One of these is the CFR, or the Council on Foreign Relations. It traces its origins back to the Paris Peace Conference after World War I, with men like Colonel Edward M. House and Walter Lippmann and many other business and academic leaders who exerted a heavy influence on President Woodrow Wilson and the U.S. government. Eventually, in 1921, they filed a certification of incorporation, officially forming the CFR, or Council on Foreign Relations. But it didn't really get traction until the 1930s, when the Rockefeller Foundation and David Rockefeller, a leading Luciferian, began contributing large amounts of money through their foundations to help set the agenda and control committees on foreign relations in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country. They funded influential institutions in academia and began to really promote this uh, one-world system agenda. Foreign Affairs is the magazine published by the Council on Foreign Relations, and Carol Quigley, who we've talked a lot about in previous sessions, reminded us that the CFR is the American branch of a society which originated in England and believes national boundaries should be obliterated and one world rule established. Now, for many decades, since at least the 30s and 40s, all American presidents have been beholden to the CFR, have been either members or attended CFR meetings. Men such as, in recent history, George W., Joe Biden, presidential candidate, Obama, uh, U.S. president. And even Donald Trump, though he was an outsider, at least by his own declaration, uh, immediately surrounded himself with advisors and cabinet members who are members of and controlled by the CFR, such as his first defense secretary, Jim Mattis, and his current defense secretary, Mark Esper, both CFR uh, men. 
In fact, uh, Donald J. Trump, puzzlingly, after promising to be an outsider to expose the deep state and to drain the swamp, included at least 67 other CFR members from day one in his cabinet and administration. Men such as John Bolton, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. You don't think he has influence um, and is beholden to the CFR? He's a CFR member. For, he was also former assistant attorney general under Reagan. He's also, by the way, John Bolton, the one who uh, directed uh, PNAC, the Project for the New American Century. Look that up uh, sometime. Uh, and he, of course, was the former national security advisor under Trump when he first uh, started. Men like Rex Tillerson, former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, current Secretary of State, all CFR members, Rick Waddell, National Security Advisor, Robert Wilkie, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Heather Ann Wilson, Secretary of the Air Force, Patrick Shanahan, Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense, and also Secretary of Defense briefly uh, during the uh, transition of power from Mattis to Esper. Anthony Scaramucci, remember that name? He was Director of Communications. He is a former Goldman Sachs executive and CFR man. Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, Jeffrey Rosen, Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Transportation and Deputy Attorney General, Jerome Powell, Chairman of the Fed, CFR, Rick Perry, CFR, Secretary of Energy, Steve Mnuchin, seen him a lot in some of the press conferences related uh, to the uh, scamdemic and some of the uh, economic relief packages, Steve Mnuchin, our Secretary of the Treasury, CFR guy, KT McFarland. A deputy National Security Advisor, and of course, Jared Kushner, Senior Advisor uh, to the President. So uh, don't think for a second that uh, Donald Trump is somehow immune from the influences of this very secretive uh, global group called the CFR. So that's one way in which we see the spirit of power, but there's another one, and that is the Bilderberg Group. The Bilderberg Group. This, the first meeting of this secretive group of world elites took place in uh, Oosterbeck, the Netherlands, in Hotel de, de Belderberg, and that was in 1954, and they've met every year since then. If you go to their website, they meet in different locations each year, uh, but it says, since its inaugural meeting in 1954, again, this is from their own website, the annual Bilderberg meeting has been a forum for informal discussions, informal discussions to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. Every year, approximately 130 political leaders and experts from industry, finance, labor, academia, and the media are invited to take part in the meeting. Remember what David Rockefeller said in a previous quote that I have given you in one of the previous sessions about how thankful he was to the media for keeping their secrets because the media attends these meetings and then they get their marching orders and they produce only the news that they want you uh, to hear. Um, so the meeting is a forum, this again going back to their own description of themselves, for informal discussions about major issues. Uh, the meetings are held under the Chatham House rule, which states that participants are free to use the information received to further their end, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers, nor any other participant may be revealed. Now, thankfully, there have been many whistleblowers who've come out, many reporters every year find out where it's going to be. It always leaks out, and they flood that hotel or that area or that city, and they have cameras, and they are able to see all the top candidates and world leaders, presidents and prime ministers and uh, so forth, getting out of limos and arriving and coming and going. And then they've even leaked uh, the uh, guest list. Uh, so we know who attends these Meetings. The Bilderberg meeting in 2019 took place in Montreux, Switzerland, and um, uh, the meeting in 2020 has been postponed or was postponed. It usually takes place in the summer, 
because of COVID. One of the top researchers into this uh, uh, area is uh, James Morkin, who said Bilderberg pulls the strings of every government and intelligence agency in the Western world. I referred to him several weeks ago, James Morkin, when we talked a little bit about underground bases uh, and how those are on the rise. He's written an excellent uh, book uh, about that. Uh, and then don't forget what Edward Bernay, the father of propaganda, said. You know, quote, a presidential candidate may be drafted in response to overwhelming popular demand, but it is well known that his name was first decided upon by a half dozen men sitting around a table in a hotel room. Wow. I mean, this, this has been known among the insiders and those who take the time to research it for decades. You know, a person doesn't just decide because he or she is powerful, wealthy, and wants to make a difference in this world and is very patriotic to say, I think I'll run for president. It just doesn't happen that way. And if an, before digital voting, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment, uh, if an outsider were able to somehow, by his own good fortune and desire and investment of money, uh, sneak into the White House over and against the approval and objections of uh, the elite, uh, then they remind him right quick, uh, who's in charge? Uh, so enough about that. We'll, we can come back to that at another time. But yes, we see the spirit of power. So we've talked about CFR and Bilderberg, but there's another secretive group at which many other plans are laid and kings are made and territories are decided uh, as to which will be invaded and, and which will not and who's going to be the heir apparent to certain countries and governments. And this is called Bohemian Grove. Now, I've done a lot of research on this. I've actually visited the original site of the first Bohemian uh, Grove meeting in Mirror Woods. There's actually an uh, actual plaque there, a historical marker indicating that that's where they first met. And then they moved north from San Francisco out into the Redwoods and into a private club called Bohemian Grove. Um, it's held annually. They're always tight security. And this is uh, uh, really troubling when you find out what goes on there. There have been uh, again, leaked documents. There's been one reporter who snuck in posing as a male prostitute because, as you're going to find out in a moment, the things that go on at Bohemian Grove are absolutely uh, off the charts evil and perverted, um, which is not surprising given its satanic nature. Uh, but we've had, there was one reporter that snuck in and posed as a male prostitute and took video, unauthorized video. And so uh, it's pretty widely known what goes on there. There have also been interviews, uh, sort of gotcha interviews uh, with key leaders like Bill Clinton once in a press conference was confronted about it. And all he could say, like a cat with a canary, was, oh, oh yeah, I've heard something about that. Is that where all the Republicans go to, you know, to, and then he talked about some uh, sexual type reference. Um, uh, David Gergen's also been uh, ambushed and uh, asked about it. And you can tell that these men that are a part of this each year, including major world leaders, uh, most U.S. presidents attend, um, are uh, not prepared to talk about it. One of the, one of the key codes of ethics as that are, you know, everyone that's part of Bohemian Grove have, has to abide by is weaving spiders come not hither. The idea is if you come here, you best not leave and plan to weave your tails to everyone because you're under a strict code of silence and you will be recompensed if you are caught disclosing the types of things that go on there. And indeed, all of the information that we have about uh, Bohemian Grove comes from secret 
leaked documents or outsiders who were able to sneak in. But the climax of the week, it's a week-long event, and people come and go, the world leaders come and go. So, for example, Reagan and Bush and Clinton, they might just be there for a day or two, maybe spend one night. Uh, but the whole uh, week climaxes at the end of the week with a ceremony called the cremation of care, in which they've now admitted, because they have video evidence of it, except that they claim that it's all in good fun, that top leaders dress up in satanic robes and druid garb, and they sacrifice an effigy of a child on an altar before a massive owl, a wooden owl that is burned. And if you know anything about Luciferianism, you know owls are a uh, particularly uh, key symbol in Satanism. And this is an actual picture of this uh, taking place at one of their past ceremonies. So top world leaders have gone. Uh, here you see one where Nixon and Reagan uh, attended. They meet in plenary sessions, such as the cremation of care at the end of the week, but they also meet in little breakout sessions. And so you might attend a little session over here under these trees, sitting around with other world leaders deciding what you're going to do about oil or what you're going to do about you know, transportation or who's going to be in charge of this sector of the world or who do we want to be the next president of the United States or who do we want to need, be the next prime minister of Britain and so forth. Um, and so that's kind of a little thumbnail sketch. But to show you how mainstream knowledge of Bohemian Grove has become in the very uh, highly acclaimed and highly watched uh, uh, Netflix, I think it was Netflix feature, a House of Cards, um, they actually had a storyline that involved the same thing, a mock human sacrifice at a Bohemian Grove-like retreat. So this is not something that is disputed. What's disputed is whether what takes place there is fake and all in good fun, or is it, in fact, uh, satanic in its very core. And I believe it's satanic. But regardless of the satanic nature of it, it should be troubling even to the greatest skeptic who hasn't ever studied it, that world leaders are meeting in a secret conclave out in the woods, what are they talking about? And especially in a free society like America, where we are supposed to be have representatives of the people, uh, not secret meetings. Uh, so we see this spirit of power at work. Well, the last thing that I want to focus on in this particular part, in this particular session on the spirit of power, is another way, not, not just CFR and Bilderberg and um, Bohemian Grove, and by the way, there are many other secret societies out there, uh, but there's another way, a very powerful means by which the elite can control things. And I, I'm, I'm going to address this subject with great trepidation because I know I've got many friends and colleagues who don't agree with me on this, and I completely respect their view. And uh, if you don't agree with it, I respect your view. But I do think you owe it to yourself to at least go down the rabbit hole and research it. Because uh, I don't want you to believe it just because I said it. But I am absolutely confident if you take the time to look at the evidence, you will come to the same conclusion that I have come to about this matter. And what I'm talking about now is fake elections. It's widely known that in many other parts of the world for centuries, even millennia, they have had rigged processes by which leaders come into power, coups and other things. But even among so-called free societies, uh, elections have been, for the most part, commandeered by the global elite, and it is no longer the case that you simply get to vote for your candidate of choice and the majority wins, or the electoral college in our case wins. Uh, once 
things moved into a digital process, it became uh, absolutely a piece of cake for the powers that be to type a few keystrokes, make a few changes on a server, and simply declare who they want to be the president. So it's my view, and again, I respect those who may disagree, but I encourage you to actually research it. Remember, Einstein said, uh, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. So I understand if you may not agree, but until you've had the time to really study it and then come to an informed conclusion, uh, I wouldn't just dismiss what I'm going to be showing you uh, out of hand. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, in, in American elections for many decades now, it's not an election, it's a selection. We know, for example, that in recent history, and some of you may remember this, that Hillary and Obama both attended a Bilderberg meeting uh, the, the year of the election there, and it was agreed by the powers that be who would be the president and who would be the secretary of state. We know that Jimmy Carter was tapped uh, from obscurity to come to a Bohemian Grove meeting, and it was there that he was uh, sort of validated and crowned as the one who would be the next uh, president. We know Reagan was similarly a compromise, and yet he tried to exert in, you know, his own influence in the same way that JFK did. And less than two months in office, what happened? Or just over two months in office, what happened? They tried to assassinate uh, Reagan. So there's definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence that this is the case, but let's look at some of the hard evidence. First of all, let's start with recent history. In 2016, after being elected, Donald J. Trump tweeted to the world that he acknowledged there is extreme voter fraud. So let's just take him at his word. Uh, he understood that there was a problem with voter fraud in America. In fact, he tapped Mike Pence to lead a panel investigating voter fraud. There was all kinds of talk in all major news outlets, including Fox News and CNN, about how Russians hacked our election servers. And uh, if you can hack into the NSA servers, in theory, the most protected technology in the world on the globe, you don't think you can hack in to some of these third-party companies, most of which are foreign-owned, that actually announce the, the results of the election? See, um, Here's an NBC headline. You know, Putin was directly tied to the election hacks. And I know it's it's been kind of a pendulum. The, the right and the left is very confused on this issue. In fact, you may not even remember. Now, do I, do I believe there was a Russian hack, or was it, you know, Czechoslovakia or Ukraine? Who, who was it that did this hack? Because, the, you know, the me mainstream media has done a great job of disseminating misinformation and confusion. My point is simply that it was acknowledged by our president himself that there was serious voter fraud in the 2016 election. And this happens all the time. There are always uh, people on the lookout for voter fraud, even before the digital age. You know, they would take big metal cases, locked cases full of ballots and toss them into Lake Michigan. That's how JFK came into power, uh, because with the help of the mob, he was able to uh, rig the election. Um, and so, you know, people vote twice. I can tell you a story uh, back from my younger days, before I was awake to the way the world really works and the Luciferian uh, conspiracy and influence in the world. I went to show up to vote in a presidential election. Uh, and uh, that was back when they had the pads. This was in Texas. They had the pads where you had your name on there, all the registered voters, and you signed on that big, long, you know, wide pad, and that indicated you had voted. And I saw right above my name as I went in to sign and, and show up to vote that a relative of mine, same last name, who I knew had already voted early, their name was still there with no signature. And I was puzzled by that, and I said, huh, 
uh, so so-and-so here, and I pointed to their name on the list, they, they haven't voted? No, no, they haven't voted. And I said, so they could show up and vote later today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anybody, there's no signature, they can show up and vote. So I went into the booth, voted, went home, called a local TV station, said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I think I've uncovered a flaw. I didn't think in, in terms of conspiracy or anything. I just thought it was a flaw in the system that people who voted early, because I knew they had done early voting, which was allowed back then, and, and of course now it's the norm. Uh, I think I've discovered a flaw where someone who voted early could come on election day and actually vote a second time. And the reporter that I talked to said, oh, really, thanks for sharing. Click, never heard another word about it. <laughs> now that should be big news. If there's a clear, easy, obvious way that people can vote twice, you know how many thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people voted early and you know for, for the last several decades in elections maybe they're going to be out of town on election day maybe they're a college student and so forth and they're not in town so they vote early and yet all they have to do is show up at their polling place on election day and vote again that's on and that's an issue but that just is one example of how it's not tightly controlled you know how easy it is to hack the electronic voting system if you don't think this is a serious, legitimate problem in the U.S., you've not been paying much attention. This has been all over the news. Every election year, every two years, not just in uh, presidential elections, it's on the news about online voting systems raise hacking concerns and, and how they have congressional hearings, you know, trying to ensure ballot box integrity. You know, here's former FBI Director James Comey testifying in Congress about how, to, how the FBI is going to try to protect these servers from being tapped into and manipulated. And what people don't understand is how easy it is for anybody with the technological know-how, it could be an 18-year-old whiz kid, to get paid $100,000 by some nefarious characters in, in what I'm presenting here, that would be the Luciferian elite, to hit a few keystrokes from a cubicle in Cleveland <laughs> during the night of the election changing the results in certain key counties of certain, say, Rust Belt states so that it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much at all. Remember, in the last election, the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, won the popular vote by 3 million votes, most ever in the history of a losing candidate to win. In fact, there's only been two or three times in history when the losing candidate won the popular vote. One of the other times was Al Gore and Bush W. in his first election. Um, but, of course, we know in our system, the popular vote doesn't matter. It's the Electoral College. And so if you need a couple of key states, and those states are close, neck and neck, all you do is change a few votes in a few key counties. Those counties turn, flip the whole state, and boom, you've got the candidate of choice. Um, these, I love this meme. These newfangled electronic voting machines are swell. It counts your voter even before you pull the lever. And that, frankly, is true. So I would recommend... Uh, if you really want to study this, I would recommend three resources. There, are, there have been many, uh, you know, really academic papers and articles and studies done on this. Again, there have been congressional hearings about it after the 2004 election, which was between Kerry and Bush. Um, uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a congressional hearing in which one key witness that was prepared to testify about how he had been paid to change the results of the presidential election in certain states was killed on his way to testify. The hearings were canceled and nothing more was ever said about it. So on the day of. Uh, so, I mean, there are a lot of things out there, but I recommend these three sources. First of all, the documentary Hacking Democracy. Again, 
you may watch it and you say, I'm still not convinced. I think our voting system is sacrosanct and my vote's going to count. If that's your conviction, you ought to vote. You ought to vote your conscience. And, uh, and I do not blame anybody for doing that. But it's become my contention that the voting system in America is absolutely rigged. Another great documentary is Invisible Ballots. Um, and the, these people have been warning about the problems with the electronic vote tabulation. And, and don't be confused. Even if there's a paper ballot that you submit into a machine and you say, oh, that's not, I'm not technically voting online by pushing a screen, even though many states do vote that way. It's not the actual voting that's the problem. It's the tabulation. It's the tabulation. Uh, and then finally, another one that I highly recommend is Black Box Voting. This is both a book and a DVD documentary. And after you look at the studies and the evidence and the investigations that have been done, going to warehouses after the fact, pulling out uh, voting boxes with their ID number on them, comparing that with printouts of what was reported to the clearinghouse, the, the, the servers off-site where you, you know, upload your results after it's over, and what the printout shows, that particular box re re reported is completely different from what is actually on the hard drive of the actual box. It's very easy without a chain of custody of paper ballots uh, to control an election. It's, uh, again, this is nothing new. Even before digital, like I said, they could just simply discard some ballots. Well, guess what we've come back to today in our present day with an election looming here in just a few days? A whole lot more paper ballots because of COVID. So maybe they... This is just my speculation. Maybe in 2016, there was a hacking war. And maybe the elite's hackers were bested by a private cabal of, back, of hackers. And they, it's not as easy for them to control now because it's basically whoever types in the keystrokes, you know, last that gets to the win. So now they're having to go back to paper ballots, which who knows if those are going to be counted. There have already been reports all over the country. I'm sure you've seen this of truckloads of uh, ballots not being delivered where they belong. So the, the process, if you don't think, here's the bottom line, if you don't think the Luciferian elite and their, uh, you know, henchmen can control an election, then, um, you know, I've got uh, some oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona. So the democratic process is not foolproof. Um, have you stopped to think about the reality of virtual cloud-based vote tabulation? I mean, ask yourself, where is your vote after you cast it? Does it stay in a little box with a padlock on it? Who controls it? Who counts it? Uh, where does it go? It just goes up into the cloud and you never see it again. And you're at the mercy of of someone sitting in front of a keyboard, clicking keys, and announcing their results to Fox News and CNN as we all sit eagerly by to hear whom we elected, when in reality it's who they selected, right? Look, I encourage everyone to vote if, you, if that's what your conscience dictates and you feel like your vote counts. Uh, if I didn't know what I know, that's how I would feel as well. But recognize the reality of this virtual cloud-based vote tabulation in our system. And never forget what anybody in the tech world tells you. There really is no cloud. There's only someone else's computer. We think, oh, it's in the cloud. Well, what is the cloud? That's a metaphor for somebody's hard drive. You know, you're just allowing your personal data when you store it on the cloud to be controlled by somebody else. Um, and I'll leave you with this. Don't forget... 
what Joseph Stalin famously said, those who cast the votes decide nothing. Those who count the votes decide everything. I did a little research into this quote. It's widely attributed to Stalin through the years, but it's actually, like a lot of quotes over the years, they sort of take on a life of their own. The actual quote that he said on which this is based is, quote, I regard it as completely unimportant who in the party will vote and how, but it is extremely important who will count the votes and how. So that sort of became conflated to those who cast the votes decide nothing, those who count the votes decide everything. But that's certainly what he meant, and that's certainly what he said when he, when he did say it's completely unimportant who votes and how. It's extremely important who counts the votes and how. Napoleon III, just a few decades before Stalin, uh, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, echoed the same sentiment when he said, I care not who cast the votes of a nation, provided I can count them. And then lastly, on a lighter note, the great theologian Mark Twain reminded us if voting really made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. They wouldn't let us do it. So the spirit of power is absolutely at work among us. And what's the solution? What's the answer? I hate to leave you without giving you from God's word some responses to what's going to be the ultimate outcome of the spirit of power. But since I'm doing this in two different sessions at least, we may carry it into three. I will leave that for the next installment. So be, be sure you watch the next episode of this series on Spirit of the Antichrist. It'll be number 15. I'm going to give you some more examples of the spirit of power. But most importantly, I'm going to go back to the Word of God again and talk about how we can overcome this spirit. Thanks for watching.